0: Trade deficits don't matter if you don't mind transferring all your wealth overseas. But if you, want, if, if you care who owns America, if you co- care who owns our stock and our real estate and, our, and our, our debt, then of course it matters. Everybody in their own life realizes that if you produce less and consume more, are you gonna get rich or poor, right? It's, just not, it's not that tricky. Right now, this trade deficit is over a trillion dollars. It's like $1.2 trillion. And that's even a phony number because Michael was pointing out there's a technical provision that doesn't even count probably 150 or 200 billion of it. We don't even know what it is. So it's probably $1.4 trillion, $1.4 trillion. We're taking of our wealth and transferring it overseas most of it, I mean, the biggest single junk to China, but to any of them, I don't want to, I mean, I want to be richer than the Koreans or the Japanese or the Europeans. I don't want to give it to anybody. I want it to be right here. I want, you know, my grandkids and your grandkids to live in a greater country, not a poorer country.
1: Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Surab Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm
2: joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And this week we
1: have a very, very special episode for you guys. We decided to go back to. Uh, live taping of Moment of Truth this week, we have the honor of doing an event with Ambassador Robert E. Lighthizer, who served as President Trump's U.S. Trade Representative for all four years of the Trump administration. We hosted him for a intimate book launch event uh, here on Capitol Hill. Uh, and taped an episode of the podcast there. For those of you who don't know, Ambassador Robert Lighthizer was sworn in as the 18th United States Trade Representative on May 15th of 2017. He's an experienced trade negotiator and litigator and brings a history of tough U.S. trade enforcement and a record of standing up for American workers, farmers, manufacturers, and businesses. At the time he was chosen by President Trump to serve as USTR, Ambassador Lighthizer was a partner at the law firm Skadden Arps, Slate, Meager, and Flom LLP where he practiced international trade law for over 30 years. His work there on behalf of American workers and businesses in the heavy manufacturing, agricultural, high-tech, and financial services industry opened markets to U.S. exports and defended U.S. industries from unfair trade practices. He was laid counsel for scores of trade enforcement cases and was a well-known advocate for the type of America-first trade policies supported by President Trump. Before joining Scadden, Ambassador Lighthizer served as Deputy USTR for President Ronald Reagan. During his tenor, tenure, Ambassador Lighthizer negotiated over two dozen bilateral trade agreements, including international agreements on steel, automobiles, and agricultural products. As Deputy USTR, he also served as the Vice Chairman of the Board of Overseas Private Investment Corporation prior to becoming Deputy USTR Ambassador Lighthizer was the Chief of Staff of the United States Senate Committee on Finance for cha- Chairman Bob Dole. In this position, he was a key player in enacting the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981, which was the most significant tax reform in decades, as well, th- as well as other basic elements of Reagan's economic program. He received a bachelor's degree at Georgetown University and is Juris Doctor from Georgetown University Law Center. He's a native of Ashtabula, Ohio and has two children. That bio I read out there is the story of Ambassador Lighthizer, someone who started out as a staffer, just like many of you, and went on to completely change the governing paradigm in American policy and politics for an entire major issue of the economy in just 50 short years. I joked with him before we officially started the taping a couple days ago that he is an example of these sort of unyielding um insistence on a particular vision of public policy uh, that can eventually move mountains. Uh, today, Biden's U.S. trade representative does not operate meaningfully differently than Ambassador Lighthizer did, but both of them operate meaningfully differently in the paradigm that came before. Uh, His new book is No Trade is Free. It is his magnum opus. I highly recommend that all of you go to buy it. It's been blurbed by everyone from Larry Kudlow to Tom Conway, the president of the United States Steelworkers, to Senator Marco Rubio, to Peter Thiel, H.R. McMaster, and many more. If you are looking for one book to understand, American trade policy. This is that book. In fact, he even says that in one of his opening chapters. It is truly, truly fantastic. And we are very grateful that Ambassador Lighthizer joined us. Nick, what
2: did you make of all of it? It was a great um, event. I I actually don't know that much uh, uh, about trade. So I was... um learning a lot throughout that whole process we had a lot of great audience questions uh if you were one of the select few that was there um thank you very much for for being there uh it was it was a great event y'all asked great questions um we hope to do many more like it in the future and if you would like to be on the list for events like that be sure to reach out
1: at slash join there you can find um a form that you can fill out in order to uh, be on our list for all sorts of things. We also have an open position that we're hiring for here at American Moment. If you go to americanmoment.org slash open positions, I think it's open-positions, dash yep. um, you will find a job posting. You can also look at our Twitter to find the same or our Instagram or any other social media. We're hiring a personnel manager to help us dramatically expand the pipeline of young personnel coming to Washington, D.C. If you think that might be you, reach out to us. We're more than happy to seriously consider any good application that comes through we'll go now to our conversation with ambassador robert lighthizer
3: appreciate it thanks y'all for being here this is great uh, packed house uh for an american moment event is not an unfamiliar scene so we're excited to have them here we're excited to uh, co-sponsor the event uh pretty important as you know uh senior partner here at cpi's uh Uh, former chief of staff in the White House, Mark Meadows. Um, And Mark is a huge fan of Ambassador Lighthizer. And so this was a great opportunity for us. Um, Yeah, and we're we're thankful y'all are here. Um, Most of you probably at least have some familiarity with what CPI does, um, but we exist to train, equip, and unite conservatives in and around the conservative movement. Um, And uh, so we host uh, a lot of uh, trainings about what goes on in Capitol Hill, um, certain specific policy issue areas, uh, uh, host coalition meetings and do a lot of things around the movement that we think are valuable for um, helping conservatives win. So this is one of those things that fits squarely into that. Uh, We're thankful you're here. Um, You know, please make sure to uh, grab a book. Uh, I understand there's going to be a book signing after this, so that's awesome. Um, And if uh, you wouldn't mind, um, to the degree that you can keep your phones in your pockets, Uh, off uh, ring and uh, away from your fingers that would be much appreciative to show uh, Ambassador Leiser the utmost respect that he deserves and um, we're really thankful you're here so uh, with that I'll turn it over to um, Stumo there he is perfect with the Coalition for Prosperous America so thank you
4: Thank you Uh, I'm Michael Stumo, the CEO of the Coalition for a Prosperous America, very proud to uh, be a co-sponsor of this event. Ambassador Lighthizer is a change agent. Um, He has a tenacity and a grit and a vision that pushed uh, monumental changes through the political establishment here in Washington, D.C. Uh, My organization is a national domestic manufacturing and agricultural producer organization. We're the domestic version in a way of the National Association of Manufacturers. We've been working since 2007 on trade and industrial policy issues to change the globalist cheap consumption at any cost, offshoring, gutting our nation trend for a while. It was tough. And then, uh, well, we had you know the election in 2016. We had gotten a, a few wins, but uh, uh, our chairman, uh, we're bipartisan, but our chairman was early on in the Trump campaign. Ambassador Lighthizer was early on. The president had good instincts, very good instincts, from way back, back in the days of China Inc., uh, which I remember, uh, our Japan Inc., I should say, Japan Inc., in the 1980s. That was the big challenge. And then, of course, the Cold War. The ambassador was in uh, the Reagan administration back then. And, of course, on the Senate Finance Committee at a point, too. But um, always pro uh, production um, in a world that wasn't that way. We remember. Uh, Under Reagan, we have an opportunity now when Ambassador was in that administration, Reagan won the Cold War. We have lessons now by cutting off the USSR from Western capital, from Western trade, from Western oil, Western capital markets, and they couldn't sustain the empire with internal consumption. They couldn't continue writing checks to Czechoslovakia, East Germany, etc. We'd cut cut the oil price with some strategic, didn't let the Europeans hook up to the Trans-Siberian pipeline and become addicted on Soviet oil, parallels to today. Uh, Convinced the Saudis to uh, pump 2 million barrels more oil to cut the oil price, and Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, we won without a shot. Also, Japan Inc. Reagan did the Plaza Accord, where the overvalued dollar was causing the biggest trade deficit in history, and an undervalued yen. He and James Baker in the Plaza Hotel in New York City realigned co- convinced Japan and others to realign, devalue the dollar, real- revalue the yen, and within five years we had trade almost balanced. He did, and, and that was the end of Japan. They entered their lost decade. Uh, We have a chance with China now. When Ambassador became USTR, of course, it took a while to get confirmed, but he had his team already uh, there. We knew his vision. And uh, uh, to they did remember 2016, we thought everybody thought China engagement was the right thing just trade with them, they're going to be a democratic capitalistic economy. That was the whole premise of them getting into the WTO and having permanent normal trade relations and getting most favored nation tariffs, etc. So, uh, Ambassadors, USTR, wrote the first 301 report, Section 301 report on China IP, a couple 300 pages detailing their intellectual property theft. Uh, they're, you know, they're weaponized, how they weaponized it systematically. Very good report. People squawked 301s, you know, we have tariffs on China, it's going to be horrible, Uh, going to have inflation. Uh, But that report, nobody could quibble with it, and it made a big change. They had a 232 report, which is more under, uh, driven by the ambassador, 232 on steel aluminum converting a basic necessary industry, what's critical for national defense. And it was a national security tariff of 25% on steel from everywhere because all the trade enforcement actions, you know, China and everywhere, they start going around the world and trying to get steel in from other countries and just put it around forever, which we should do for our tariffs now, as the ambassador knows. And people said, oh, that's not national security. This is horrible. Inflation, oh my gosh, chaos, isolationism. The ITC just came out with a report in March saying there was hardly any inflation. Uh, The Princeton economists, you know, uh, waterboarded data in their basement for a while to come up with speculative inflation, but it never happened. Um, Of course, Chairman Xi, General Secretary Xi helped by being, you know, pretty belligerent over there. Uh, But then they did the 201 tariffs on uh, solar, and that was going to be horrible, kill solar. We went from 3% domestic market share to 18% in the country in a couple of years. Washing machines, that was going to be horrible to do 201 tariffs on washing machines. Now we have washing machine plants going into the LG and Samsung building in this country. There's. This is how he knew how to rebuild the country, and he and the president pushed it. If you read the book and see how the China negotiation inside story was, and how the ambassador had gone around with, you know, he knew. Every failed promise the Chinese had made, every breach they had made, and he carried it around. So when they said new stuff like, "Oh no, you know, we'll promise this, we'll promise this," or they had the very nice Chinese negotiator, but when they went back to the, you know, the China first hawks, you know, nothing would ever happen. And he he kept strong. He didn't get into the, you know, the lazy international relations, diplomatic, foreign affairs speak where you just promise like rosy things with nothing specific. They got very specific and, oh no, China's going to retaliate. So China did retaliate because there was a first wave of tariffs on some products and China retaliated. We're going to get you. And so what did they do? They put another wave on because we imported like 580 billion from them and only exported 200 billion. So they had limited ammo and then they retaliated again and and we upped the tariffs. The president did, with the ambassador. And they kept on and they, they got the administration, which was not together, uh, but strong on it because the president was behind it. And uh, the farmers got you know hit a bit, but you compensated them with you know, $12, $13 billion, but you're getting 70, 80 billion from the tariff. So it's a good deal on net. And so that was very hard. This was revolutionary to put through and the ambassador did this. So I'm very proud to be here to welcome him and to, we, we I know with us, a CPA, we were 24-7 with economic studies and press and everything to defend the 201s, the 232s, the 301s, because everyone was out to get them, and the ambassador was right. And it's showing it now. And we're still now working with the ambassador on issues as he's still engaged in public policy with the new Congress. This stupid de minimis loophole that's letting another $180 billion of Chinese goods come in, uninspected fentanyl, counterfeit goods, et cetera, which should be shut down. Uh, FedEx and the Postal Service are bringing in all this uninspected stuff that's dangerous and un, uh, forced labor cotton, et cetera. We're working with them on China most favored nation status which uh, why do we have China as a most favored nation for low tariff treatment? They're not a most favored nation, obviously, but the world now knows that China is not our friend. Believes more and more they're our enemy, at least a rival and more than a competitor. And the public opinion has fully shifted. And so this is a very different world than 2016 because of the ambassador and what he did and his book, No Trade is Free, lays out what he did, his vision, It's an important book, it's an historic book, and I'm proud to know you.
1: Thank you, Michael. Uh, Just a couple of ground rules for everyone real quick. We're going to start this conversation with a 30 minute uh, discussion between Nick, myself and the ambassador. After that, we'll have 30 minutes for Q and A. Ask detailed, deep questions, this is the guy to ask them. You're more than welcome. There'll be a mic floating around, right? Um, And uh, just be sure to speak into the mic so that we capture the audio. If you want to identify yourself and the organization you're with, that's fine too. Just don't give a speech. Please frame your speech as a question. and, um, and then afterwards, we're going to have uh, a book signing. Um, I'll provide a little bit more logistics about it afterwards, but we'll actually have Post-it notes. Just be sure to write your name on those Post-it notes uh, just so that the ambassador can make sure it doesn't hurt any feelings by spelling names wrong. There's some some pretty goofy names in this audience. Kidding. <laughs> um, so uh, to introduce uh, the ambassador very quickly, um, I, I almost feel like he doesn't need any introduction. And uh, the framing that... that I've come up with in order to describe Ambassador Lighthizer is probably one of the most legendary staffers that Washington has seen in the last hundred years. Um, He began as a staffer, much like many of you, on the Senate Finance Committee, uh, and ended up being Deputy U.S. Trade Representative for Ronald Reagan. Someone who there are many truths told about when it came to his trade policy, and many lies told about as well. And for forty years, Ambassador Lighthizer, uh, I'm sure, felt like he was in the wilderness in a in a political consensus that said that the only answer. Um, For the 21st century was free trade. And then and then his moment came and he was ready. He was prepared, more prepared than anyone uh, to take on the job of President Trump's U.S. trade representative. He served ably uh, for four fantastic years and completely changed the center of gravity in American politics. Please give him a warm round of applause.
0: Thank you. you let me thank CPA, first of all, and, and CPI, and you all for, for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Good opportunity to talk. Um, if you're thinking about writing a book, don't do it. Just <laughs> I know at some point in your life, you'd say, I should probably write that. Don't do it. Just say you heard it from an old guy who did it and said, it's, it's too much trouble. All right. With that, I'll go
1: ahead. Ambassador, I, I framed your introduction as as someone who sort of was out in the wilderness for the last 40 years fighting for an issue, and, and it feels like your your moment has definitely come. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like um, to be a staffer, both in the Senate and in the presidential administration, Ronald Reagan, um, in those early days, and, and what the fight has felt like ever since then to move American trade policy in the direction that you have?
0: Well, well, thank you. That's like a good opening question. So uh, you, you, know, you ask, you know, how did you get into this? Um, and I, I, you know, the, 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 the story in the book is that I'm from the Midwest and we got screwed, which is true, of course, but I'm also a contrarian. So I basically start with the opposite. You know, the, the position I tell young people, if everyone agrees on something, you can be reasonably sure it's not true. <laughs> there are times when, you're, when that's wrong, but if you bet that way, you're going to do better um so so, so I came to the hill in in December of nineteen seventy eight it was a very different hill now, I'm the Senate, right, so it's not the house uh, I'm a big by the way, a big believer in the the importance of hill staff. I don't know how much of you how many of you are hill staffers, but I think you really, really can make a difference, and you can make a difference over time when you get in when you get out, you can help your boss you can you can write legislation that really makes things better for the American people. Um, but in those days, so in 78, um, the Republicans hadn't been in power in the Senate for 20 years, 24 years. There was, In fact, there was only one Republican um, senator who had ever been in the majority. It was Tom Thurman, and he was in the majority as a Democrat. Um, and then um, uh, in the House, the situation was, was, was even even worse, right? Uh, and then, so I was the Republican staff director of the committee. We worked with a with a chairman uh, whose name was Russell Long. Many of you don't remember, but was one of the great men of the Senate. Right? He's in my top five of all time. This wonderful uh, chairman from Louisiana. Um, and then, obviously, Bob Dole. Right? I mean, that's most of you know enough about Bob Dole to know you're pretty lucky if you get a chance to work with him. And and you know we, I mean I think most people expected we'd be in the minority forever, and you know, we did a trade bill which kind of got me interested in trade the first time. So if you think of trade, there's been kind of two great implementing bills, implementing negotiations. One was during Clinton, which I talk about in the in the book at, at some in some detail, and which I think is really 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 bad. And then there was the previous one. Um, uh, which was the Tokyo round, and which and it kind of gave me my first taste of what this was like. Although, uh, as you can imagine, as the re- Republicans after I to the committee, I'd spent more time on on taxes than trade. Right, trade was kind of something that came through. And then in in 1980, you know Ronald Reagan's elected president, and he brings in all kinds of senators, and all of a sudden we're in the majority. I believe it was the first time in, in 24 years Republicans have been in the majority. So it was like it was like shocking. I remember the first, uh, we've had our, our first hearing and I'm trying to scramble to decide what to do. You know, I'm now the staff director of the committee and I'm looking and I think, well, God, we don't have a gavel. I said, Jesus Christ, we got to figure out a way to get a gavel at eight in the morning because you can't have a gavel to start the bloody thing. You know, long taking his gavel as you would expect him to. And we ended up finally breaking into the, stationary sort of get a gavel, so I could just say, "Okay, we got a gavel." Um, but but it was you know it was a remarkable experience. We did the, the in those times. Now in the majority, we did the, the Reagan economic plan. Um, we we did the spending cuts, the welfare reform. Um, we did the only time that Social Security has been reformed in, in the lifetime of anybody. Um, what was the rule against perpetuity? Who's a lawyer, right? It was a lifetime of anyone alive plus twenty-seven years. or Remember the rule against perpetuity. But it was like the last time it's ever been done in nineteen eighty-three, um, in a very bipartisan way. And so we did we did the Reagan stuff. We did that. We did major trade bills, and and it was just a great experience, right? It was you know you you saw these people who literally thought they would never be in the majority. All of a sudden they're in the majority. They're making plans, and they have an inspirational president. Right. We have Ronald Reagan in the in the White House, so it was it was like a you know it was a it was a happy time, and 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 coming from a very bad time because the Carter administration um, was not a very successful administration, right? It was a particularly bad administration.
1: So the hagiography in this town, in the conservative movement, especially in more libertarian inflected organizations, is that Ronald Reagan was an unadulterated free trader, um, and that any of the ideas that you're talking about would be anathema to him. He's turning his grave. You could power a city with how fast he's rotating. Correct the record, if you will. Um, is that true? Sure. First, I'm, I'm thinking of that joke
0: that they used to say that Gerald Ford said that if Abraham Lincoln was alive today, he'd be rolling over in his grave, which always, <laughs> I, was, I always have to think about. That's kind of funny. Um, so uh, no, Ronald Reagan was, he, he talked of free trade for sure. Um, but his policy was very much a populist economic policy, uh, and I was there. I sat in the room with him. I, I saw what he did, uh, and, and, and he took uh, very, very bold steps, um, not as bold as what we did in the Trump administration, but the situation was less desperate. Um, so, so what did he do? At that point, as as Michael suggested, we were really kind of under assault by the Japanese, who who had a lot, did a lot of the things that the Chinese are doing now, but you know they didn't do the cyber theft and all the, the uh, the, the kind of um, uh, hostile things, but a lot of the same economic policies they did. Um, but the difference as I always say, is they wanted. To get rich, but they didn't want to eat us, right? The Chinese want to get rich and actually become number one. They always kind of viewed themselves as under our umbrella, so um, we saw trade deficits go up very, you know, substantially, and and he put in um, he put in what we called voluntary restraint agreements. Now that's a VRA is not a term anybody uses anymore, but in those days, uh, this is before the last trade round. Um, you were allowed to have agreements between countries that say we're going to limit the amount of imports that come in from that country. And the way you got that, of course, is you went to, for example, the Japanese and said either you limit it or we're going to stop you from coming in. And there was, a, there was a real, in autos, for example, there was a real movement to put quotas on Japanese automobiles. I mean, it was a very popular uh, among Republicans as well as Democrats and could have possibly passed. So, so, he negotiated voluntary restraint agreements with the quotes around the voluntary to limit the increase because the Japanese were literally taking over our auto industry. He did the same thing on steel uh, for most of the world. He did the same thing on, on uh, especially steel, which is another category. He put in place uh, a program for semiconductors because while we had invented the semiconductor the the japanese using as i say mercantilist policies not unlike ones you'll find in that i talk about with china and they had essentially taken over the semiconductor business and so he put a limitation on that put Put um, uh, and, and had a semiconductor program. He did. Um, it, he, he famously put a limitation on motorcycles coming in because they were literally wiping out Harley Davidson. So he went down the line. When something came up that that threatened America, Ronald Reagan took action. And I would say one of these um, uh, libertarian groups. Uh, when Reagan left, said that they thought he was the most protectionist president since Hoover. So, they I mean, the libertarians just hated him. And then the final thing he did, uh, among the final things, was was what Michael mentioned, he, and that was the Plaza Accord. So, a good part of the problem all the way through, and by the way, it's the problem now too, is we had a currency that was too strong, and so you're running big trade deficits. And what what uh, Jim Baker did is he got everyone together in the Plaza Hotel in New York and got them to agree, not just to change the value of the yen, but to change the value our, our value of our currency relative to five or six key currencies. And when that happened, it takes a while for that to change the direction of the, of the of the, uh, of the uh, you know of the battleship. But when it did, uh, it got the trade deficit down. So Ronald Reagan was was by no means a free trader. He thought about trade, about how you would expect a smart, patriotic
2: pro-American person to think about trade. Where did uh, conservative trade policy go wrong after Reagan?
0: Well, so there was
2: always this, I've spent time thinking about this
0: and I don't really have a complete answer. There was this th- th- there was always this sort of sense, that um, that we were free traders, so. But let's just take a step back. So you, you start off and you have Republican presidents, right? Every Republican president from from uh, Lincoln up to Hoover, every one of them. If you said, "Are you a free trader?" they would say, "Are you nuts?" If you asked Teddy Roosevelt that, and I have the quote in there, he famously said something like, "Free trade." Destroys the you know the, the 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 fiber of your body. So every one of them, Lincoln, every one of them, if you ask, they all would have said no, no, no. They all would have been in that. They wouldn't have all used the term protectionist, but a lot of them would have. But they would have certainly said we need tariffs, we need kind of an industrial policy, we need to build up America's industry. Every single one of them. All right, period, without exception. Then you come to the Second World War. Now you have Eisenhower. Who also took some actions that were very much in agreement with the way I think and the way you think, um, but Eisenhower's objective was different, right? He was in a world where he was trying to take on the Soviet Union, and there was only one economy in the world, right? There was no real, there wasn't the kind of competition that we think of, right? There was there was one economy that was left after the Second World War, and it was us. So uh, you fast forward from there, you, 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 you. Um, it, you, you look at, at Nixon in 1971, the trade deficit's going up again. What does Nixon do? He uses, you could argue whether he had the authority to do it. There was a lot of litigation, but he put 10% tariffs on the entire world to get the trade deficit down and stop the, and and then renegotiated the value of gold to stop the run on the gold. So if you kind of go, you don't really see a lot of this kind of action, but there was this undercurrent, which kind of goes your sense, that somehow tariffs... Are like taxes, and we're 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 against taxes. Therefore, we should be against tariffs. And then, at the same time, there was a kind of a, a libertarian element to conservatism, which is you know, which to me, at least, philosophically, since a lot of you probably think of yourselves as both, to me, they're philosophically very different things. And that kind of influence had an effect on some people. But uh, and and then and then the other thing that was going on had nothing to do with philosophy at all. It had to do with just money, right? So you had big corporations bringing manufacturing overseas, making a lot of money, importing, being influenced by uh, Japan and then China because they they want access to the U.S. market, and we're worried about consumption and not production, and we don't care about workers. What we care about is Television sets and so that kind of took over. It kind of fanned this little embryo, and 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 uh, you know fed it with money, in my opinion, so that people would start saying that. But but if you look at Republican platforms for most of our existence,
1: they would be clearly state we need tariffs to build up our industry. So, you guys. Changed this consensus pretty thoroughly during the Trump administration. And I think if there is one reason why institutional Washington is at all willing to go along with your perspective now, it is China. Um, in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about the singular. Uh, threat that China is, both in terms of the history of the United States, um, how it's never had a, a great power that is as competitive with it as China, um, but also just just more broadly, the, the malfeasance that they engage in. Uh, I want to hear more about your perspective on China, but, but to start, are you frustrated at all that every concession on trade policy made by the traditional Republicans uh, or the Uniparty in D.C., is being laundered through the uh, the lens of national security. Do you think that everything you want to see done on trade policy can be done through that lens alone?
0: So, so I mean, let me. I'll come back to the question of China generally, right? But, but to to some extent, in the discussion in Washington, people who who either view themselves as free traders or think they should be free traders, right, which is a different group of people, or don't want to challenge people who aren't free traders, will say, well, we have to make an exception because of national security. So it tends to kind of just create its own argument, right? It's it's just something that tends to happen. Um, to me, the most fundamental thing is that, and I'm a, I'm, you know, a national security hawk, also as you can imagine right i'm sure no one would have any doubt about that but the first thing you don't want to do in national security you clearly don't want to transfer weapon technology and you don't want to give away your military secrets and all of that of course every everybody would agree with that but i always say but but do you want to actually build the other guy's army do you want to do you want to create the chinese navy is that something we should be doing because that's what we're doing we basically are funding. In other words, the amount of money they get from us is far bigger than they spend on their own army and navy every year. So I like to say we've built the greatest army, the biggest army, not the greatest, but the biggest army and the biggest navy in the world. And it's in China. So when you think about national security, the one element is all this kind of bombs and guns and strategy and all this kind of stuff which is very important but the other side of it is do you give money to the other side if i if i had said in the cold war i think we ought to give a hundred billion dollars to the soviet union right i mean everybody would say well this is like this guy's obviously not a serious person or 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 in in the second world war just go through where you want but that is what we are doing so there's the national security question is, is two things to me, and the one that gets the least attention, and that's, in my opinion, probably the most important, is that we are literally not only buying their bombers, we are paying for the technology to be developed to make the d- bombers. I mean, is that like like the essence of national security. But yet you'll talk to a lot of hard power people and they'll say, you know, and the, the, I'll give you a good example. It's the Wall Street Journal. They'll say, yeah, you can argue whether they actually believe China is a threat to the extent I do probably don't. But they will acknowledge, yeah, they're a threat. But of course we should continue to trade with them and give them eight or nine or whatever the number is, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And you think, how does that make any sense? who, who, I mean, like, what are you paying attention to? Don't you realize that if you if you make the first decision, this is an adversary that wants nothing but bad things for us, and is a a genuine threat to to our existence and to our our way of life. Why would you then say, "Oh, but it's more important that we that we get that"? That bloody third television that's in the basement right up against, you know, you know, the the, the uh, you, know, you know grandma's clock or, or, or that your T-shirt is, you know, you can get that 14 T-shirt a buck cheaper. I mean, it's just when I think about it, I think you're, you're just you're not serious people if you think like that. Right. That's serious. People don't think like that. Serious people say you have a problem. You address the problem. So, so uh, this, I mean, we can get into why I'm worried about China. I mean, the, the, the rest of your question, but, but on the national security, it is troubling to me that that is that lens. But I'm willing to adopt that lens as long as people are willing to broaden it to say, okay, fine, now we need, I always say, strategic decoupling. We need strategic decoupling. That's not, it's not no trade, but it means we ought to have balanced trade. And we ought not to trade in technology, and we ought not to be sending uh, huge amounts of investments there, which are designed to help them or allow them to have investments come here. Every dollar of which is approved because they believe it'll help them. Net, right? So when I talk about strategic decoupling, it's to get around. it it, it is in the context of national security.
2: So as it relates to the national security and and china uh question i think one of the most prevalent uh things right now that many people are discussing and and you know signing legislation and that sort of thing is chip manufacturing um how are you thinking about uh that as we you know approach having another conservative administration what should conservatives do about uh, chip manufacturing
0: so I mean, this this is another one i once you can say where where did this craziness come from like that we're against subsidies now our our operating assumption should be that we're not going to subsidize industry unless it's compelling right that should be our position because we know it's inefficient and we know you can't pick winners very well and the like so that should be our start but the notion that's out there that somehow Republicans don't believe in subsidies or that the American, great American industries came up without subsidies is just palpably wrong, right? I mean, there would be no railroads. There'd be no, I mean, the whole railroad was a, was a real estate play. I mean, Apple's phone screen was developed by U.S. money. I mean, it's, we have to be realistic. Now, once again, I say, if you start off with a proposition that we're going to, subsidize everything, you're gonna end up screwing up your economy and going into debt. But for those of you who work on the hill, you've gone into debt without subsidizing. So you can <laughs> show you can do it in any number of ways. But but so you get to the the certain technologies that you can't you can't afford to lose on. And it's easy to find out what those technologies are. China, several years ago, put out a plan. And they called it Made in China 2025, and they listed 10 technologies. And they said, we're going to be the leader in the world, independent, not integrated with the US and the like, independent on these areas. And they're working their way through them. And and of course, on that list are semiconductors. And you can't imagine, you can't make a tank. Forget an an F-35. You can't make a tank. You won't be able to make a rifle. You know, I mean, be, you know, a high-tech rifle without without chips, before long. So, so of course we have to have chips now. That is, and I supported that legislation. That isn't to say it's flawless. I mean, I'm sure it, that if any of us sat down with no influence, we could have found 15 ways to make it a better bill. But the people that sat down had the influence, right? So, so, and that that's one of the things Senator Dole used to say: we would pass something that wasn't perfect, which None of the stuff you pass is perfect, he used to say, but that's why the Congress is staying in session. That's why we're gonna have a Congress next year, right? We're gonna be able to sort some of these problems out. But for sure, you can't afford to lose chips. We essentially invented and developed chips and we make whatever the number is, Michael knows it, maybe 12% of our own chips and 0%. we, We have no technology to make the small chips. We're at least two generations. We cannot make them at all in the United States. Now, can you can you realizing that every single piece of your military hardware has chips in it? Not to mention every car. Can you possibly say, no, no, no. I'm not going to do that because I'm pure. Like, right? That's just self-defeating.
1: I think the Chips Act is a very interesting petri dish to think through a lot of these issues because some of the potential political constraints were very relevant as well. I think you saw, you know, th- there are many um, fantastic senators that, that have spoken very eloquently on these issues over the years, like Senator Rubio, Senator Hawley, who ended up deciding to vote against the CHIPS Act because they thought that the issues with the bill surpassed um, the potential benefits. And you saw more more moderate senators supporting it, uh, at least on the Republican side. And, and then on the flip side, on the implementation, I think you saw some of the potential attendant concerns that would come out of any industrial policy or agenda of reshoring in the United States being managed by the left, where they you know there there are certain like woke diversity priorities and some other things put into it. Um, how did you think about the the aftermath of the Chips Act? Um, what did it tell you about the politics uh, uh, of this situation and and what future reforms might look like or should look like?
0: Well, well, I mean the. the so whether you voted for it or against you have to decide what you're focusing on, right? If you're focusing on what I said, that is to say that we lose. I mean, look at, at China is probably spending a half a trillion dollars on this. Korea is spending 200 billion. Japan 250 to develop chips. Europe two or three hundred billion dollars, and we're not going to do anything. And 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 the ingenuity of the American. I mean, it was it's it's it's, it's just completely crazy. But so. If you're looking at the need for that, you vote for it. If you're looking at the fact that the left larded it up with things that are not only a waste of money, but are actually against our culture, right? Then you could see voting against it. But then you would say, oh, but if it's done properly, I'll vote for it. All right. You know, that's a perfectly fine position. In my opinion, though, the urgency was greater than that. And so to me, you vote for it, you get started, you get these fabs here. And then in the next election, you sort out all this garbage. right? And that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to sort out all this garbage. And as I say, by no means do I think, or did I, or do I think the bill is perfect. That's, but, but that is why Congress should be here. And if you had a House and a Senate that were Republican and a Republican in the White House, you could sort this thing out in three or four months. And my view is you probably should do that. And it is so bad because you had all three together with no counterweights on the other side.
1: So before we get to audience questions, I want to ask you, and you talk about this in the book, of course, uh, what is left to be done when you think about what you could have done with four more years as U.S. Trade Representative. What you think needs to happen more broadly um, in American um, policy making? What are the broad themes that you think um, the the next conservative administration should focus on in terms of uh, what needs to be done? So,
0: so in 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 trade, um, because you, so if you're talking about economic policy, clearly we need just broader. We need to reduce business taxes right and the reason we do is because we have to compete with other companies around countries around the world and i i draw a distinction between business taxes and personal taxes the personal taxes thing is your own moral judgment right and i mean people forget that even hoover i think he raised the taxes before he was booted out to individual income tax to 62 percent so i mean we we, you know he right now of course franklin roosevelt raised him to about 95 but but we need to lower business taxes so that we can compete. A, I start with the proposition that what I want are jobs and higher wages, right? That's what that's my proposition. And so when I look at everything, I measure, okay, fine. How is this gonna create more men and women working and more pressure on getting their wages up? So we need to cut business tax, in my opinion. We need to cut regulation. Um, and then um, we need obviously to 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 do the things we that everyone would agree with, I think, here on energy policy and the like, there are certain things that are just kind of completely obvious. Um, but in the trade area, we need one strategic decoupling, like what I just said. We have to stop transferring hundreds of billions of dollars every year to an adversary who wants to take over the world. I mean, it's just like, hey, there's you know, go home you know, find the first eight-year-old you see and say, here, here's the situation. What should I do? And they'll say, well, I got an idea. Quit giving candy to the bad guy, right? That's the first thing you should do. And I, I outlined in there how we should do it. I think it should be tariffs. And I think, I think we have to dis, disentangle on technology. And then I think we have to regulate investment. But I think beyond that, and 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 by the way, had we been in, we would have raised tariffs on on China. I mean, it's not that tricky. It was working. Our plan was working. If you look up to March of 2000, the trade deficit globally was going down. The trade deficit, the trade deficit with China was down five quarters in a row year over year. So I mean, it, it was it was working. Then, of course, you had COVID, and and they went out and pumped a trillion dollars you know stop the economy and then drop a trillion dollars out to buy stuff from China and then the Democrats came in and said well you know yeah. we'll see your trillion and raise you a couple of trillion and all of a sudden the trade dips everything went crazy so uh, I think we have to do that with respect to China but personally I believe we need we need tariffs increase across the board to get to balanced trade or something approaching balanced trade so 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 let's talk about that for a second because Economists tell you, oh, trade deficits don't matter, right? It's just the other side of the capital account. Most of you have heard that. The money all comes back, right? Because what can you do with dollars and buy stuff in America? And I did a piece in The Economist that really kind of drafted off of a piece that Warren Buffett did 20 years ago. And the, the conclusion is sort of this, trade deficits don't matter if you don't mind transferring all your wealth overseas. But if you want, if if you care who owns America, if you co- care who owns our stock and our real estate and our and our our debt, then of course it matters. Everybody in their own life realizes that if you produce less and consume more, are you going to get rich or poor? Right? It's just not. It's not that tricky. Right now, this trade deficit is over a trillion dollars. It's like 1.2 trillion dollars. And that's even a phony number because Michael was pointing out there's a technical provision that doesn't even count probably 150 or 200 billion of it. We don't even know what it is. So it's probably 1.4 trillion dollars. 1.4 trillion dollars we're taking of our wealth and transferring it overseas most of it, I mean, the biggest single junk to China, but to any of them, I don't want to I mean, I want to be richer than the Koreans or the Japanese or the Europeans. I don't want to give it to anybody. I want it to be right here. I want, you know, my grandkids and your grandkids to live in a greater country, not a poorer country. So I think we need we need tariffs across the board. We need to get down, to, and you have to be careful about them. And, and and I'm not trying to get to a surplus, but you can't have a position where one country supports the the, the entire global economic growth. And that's what we have right now. So you have a couple of countries that, then a few more than a country, but a couple of big ones, China and Germany, who run surpluses all the time. And you have the United States in, To a lesser extent, Canada and Australia running deficits all the time. And you can't can't do that. And and one of the things you do when you think about it, if you are running a surplus every year, right, you're basically taking resources from your own consumers and giving them to your producers in order to get a surplus, right? That by itself is protectionist. So we talk about ourselves, oh, you put tariffs on, he's a protectionist, and I'm thinking China's got a $500 billion surplus for decades. That's not protectionist. I, I, I would always tell these people, if I'm a protectionist, I'm a damn poor one. <laughs> we got a trillion dollars. Now, in our case, it was a $500 billion. We had a $500 billion trade deficit. If, if I'm a protectionist, I'm, damn, I'm not good at it, right? The protectionists are the people that run these huge surpluses. And 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 another point worth making is that, obviously having a surplus of one country and a deficit with another doesn't matter, except you could have compositional questions, but as a general matter, it doesn't matter. Having a surplus one year or a deficit with the next doesn't matter. But when you have a pattern of decades of transferring your wealth overseas to the same four or five or six countries, that's a problem. And that's what the United States is doing. And they're, the only thing we're getting in return, or the biggest thing we're getting in return, is consumables. Like you know, like I would talk to these economists, and I'd say, "Oh, you think we have a we're an under-consuming society? Does anybody here think that? Right? If anything, we're under-producers. We're not under-consumers. We consume way too much, and it's because of this global structure that we have allowed." To happen. And and to, to get back to the question about the, the foreign policy people and national security, a lot of those people would say, oh, but it's worth it because now we have more influence with people. I'm thinking, in 1985, the Beatles answered that question. <laughs> you can't buy me love. You're not going to get love from these people. You, I'll, I'll give you a, 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 an example. Almost 30% of every good and services made in Vietnam shipped to the United States. Think about it for a second. Every single thing in their entire economy, almost a third of it, comes to us. Do you think they like us more than they like China, right? Look at a map. If you had China next to you, would you say, oh, we're going to be nasty to China and like America because we get to sell it"? This doesn't cross their mind for two seconds. Because the basic notion that transferring your wealth to other people will make them li- like you is, is is a wrong notion. It's there's
1: it just doesn't work. We have time for many questions. <coughs> Raise your hand and a uh, mic will be brought up to you to uh, frame your speech in terms of a question. Uh, let's see, Liam, right up here.
2: Uh, Thank you, Ambassador, for speaking today. So my question is about things that we can't produce in America. So I'm thinking in particular of like critical minerals, right? Most of those are mined in Africa and then refined in China. Um, What sort of trade policies would you suggest to secure our supply lines there since we can't just produce our own minerals?
0: Well, let me say, first of all, uh, I'm not suggesting that what you're saying is a null set but I'll suggest that that the, the number of critical minerals that we can't produce is much smaller than, than the, the people you talk to as you walk across, read it. we can't make this, look at, I, I, and I have, I don't know if it's in the book, I think I have it in, uh, it's one of the articles I wrote. The, 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 California produced huge percentage of this stuff up till 20 years ago. California did, and why doesn't it now? because the Chinese have basically put them out of business. So but if your question is, do we need a policy to make sure that we have access to the things that are necessary to build chips and the like, then I absolutely agree with that. I think we ought to have a policy like that. And and I think anything that we do, we have to phase in. But I think people who say, oh, well, we're just hopelessly dependent on China for all of this stuff. I mean, that's surrender right and let's not kid ourselves that's surrender right you either don't know there's a problem or you're surrendering and to me you have to eventually start locking up your own you ought to have a government program and we have one but probably not robust enough and then start putting tariffs on stuff and force our manufacturers i mean one of the things you're going to find is that and and when you're when you're dealing with business people like this right they'll figure out a way to make money if you write the rules right they'll figure it out that's what they get paid. a lot of them get paid you know millions they'll figure it out if you say we want you to give up some of your profit and do the right thing that's a very small group if you find that guy Take a picture of him. Send it to me. I want to say, I've never seen a. <laughs> I've never seen a unicorn. I want to see one. All right, but if you write rules, these people will figure out how to do it. But just on this, the the, the rarer specifically, yeah. Well, of course, we need a more robust program on that, and eventually, it ought to have subsidies, and it ought to have tariffs. Jeff. Yeah.
2: Hi. Excuse me. I'm Jeff Anderson, president of the American Main Street Initiative. Um, I just want to follow up on an earlier question. Um, you kind of connected the, the dots from Lincoln all the way to Reagan. Um, and I, my question is, where did this, where do we lose the emphasis on the importance of making things in America? If it was still there in Reagan's administration, where did it really take a noticeable turn in? Uh, and why and how i'm just curious to hear your thoughts on the trajectory and how that came about
1: i'd welcome any bashing in the bushes here too uh,
0: well yeah well um so let me say in the 70s we began to have this problem right in other words this Ronald reagan saw it the way we see it all right but it was a problem in the 70s so it wasn't like it's a big, it's a, a a very recent phenomenon um as i say nixon was motivated by the dollar and the i mean the vice of gold reagan was motivated and ran for election not entirely but one of his issues were and that's how he got these so-called reagan democrats right so there was the trade deficit relative to now was small but relative to then it was pretty big so there this this idea of making in america was a was a significant issue in the late seventies, but to me the 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 real problem were the nineteen nineties, right? To me, the real problem was the nineteen nineties. In the nineteen nineties, we had won the the Cold War, and and it was, his, it was the end of history. I remember. And everyone here was smarter than everyone in the world and that everything that we all thought was going to happen was going to happen and everyone was going to be having ice cream sundaes for breakfast. It was just perfect. Everything was going to be fine. And that kind of hubris led us to NAFTA, led us to the the, the Uruguay Round, which created the WTO, and led us to letting China in. And to me, it was a combination of that hubris this sort of notion that the markets, the history had changed, right? I I tell people, the only thing they missed was human nature. That's the only part of it they missed. But that also, you know, we don't need any rules. Everything's going to be perfect. And then you put an overlay of which is hell people who are making money importing, right? And the combination of that was toxic. And you saw millions of people lose their jobs. Right. And I'll tell you another thing which I don't talk about in the book, but it but is so you say, who's the counterforce to that? Right. Who what's the counterforce to that? And the counterforce is a few of us. Right. And it's it's, you know, patriots and it's people who you know, like the steel industry, because the steel industry is largely in a position where you, where they, they 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 don't have to be domestic, but it's best for them to be domestic. Um, you, you, the, The other counterforce are industrial unions. And what you saw in the labor movement was a reduction in the relative strength of industrial unions because of this loss of all these jobs and a huge increase in the relative strength of government and service sector unions. And so you ended up, now the unions are still allies. They're still on my side. And I have a lot of great friends there, and I am thank God they're there. But it's the industrial unions who who are like, have the stake. And the, the government unions agree with this out of solidarity with the industrial unions. But if, I don't know what the number is, but I'd be surprised if the industrial unions are 25% of the union movement. So you can see. Um, that weakened the counterforce, right? And now, fortunately, as I say, they're still on the battlefield, and there's still some really, really good ones. That Tom Conway is is a blurb my book, who's who's a, a good friend and one of the, you know, one of one of the guys with the with the the the, the long knife attacking the barbarians for the, on behalf of his workers. But but I think that's something people don't talk about enough. You, there was kind of a shift in emphasis to different kinds of unions, and the unions were the most important. The the unions and domestic producers were like a combination when it came to stopping these things, and all of a sudden you got to kind of a tipping factor and people started importing more, and all of a sudden those people have a stake in it. Anyway, so it's an interesting question. I've thought about it, and I could give another answer tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> about more right it's one of those interesting things that who knows right
1: gus up here um how can the state defend american companies intellectual property and how should our trade policy
4: penalize nations that conduct espionage and theft against us
0: so um you know that's a little bit not a little That's really what we kind of did with china and and it, it is a a problem. So if 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 you go home and say I asked this question to Light they'll see how he said tariffs. So I'm going to surprise you and say tariffs, <laughs> right? So you have to be serious about this. You have to be serious about it. So if if somebody says to me I want to disentangle our technology from from China, set a five-year time frame and say we're going to put tariffs on anything that comes in that has that technology in it and over a period of 5 years people won't do it they'll 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 disentangle they'll bring it in and they'll develop ways around it and they'll do and they'll work with our allies and they'll do it but but when you're in this space generally all right there are specific laws that a company can take to protect themselves, all right? And and those laws need strengthening and, and the like, but they're there. But in addition to that, we need a systemic approach, and I think that's what you're getting at. We need to look at the system. We need to punish their whole system for doing this kind of thing. And the notion that you would look the other way when you have these massive cyber thefts, and, and the current administration Literally doesn't even talk about it. I mean, they, they're afraid they're going to offend the Chinese, so they don't even talk about it. And it's a it's a scary notion. One of the things we we kind of estimate when we have a big estimate of what the loss of technology is every year to the United States, but we uh, it's like two to four hundred billion dollars a year in lost technology and all this. That's a lot of bloody money. And and the other thing is, you lose that technology. You get a generation or so behind. It's real hard to get you back up if you're a generation or two behind. So to, to, to me, you you know everybody will say we don't want to pick between the United States and China. You can't sell technology in the world and not sell it in our market. You just can't do it, right? We're we're too big a part of the market. So you just have to say, people, we are we are cho- we are picking. You got to pick sides right One of the, you mentioned bush i guess it was bush i always thought the most intelligent thing he ever said was you're either with us or you're with the terrorists <laughs> i'm sure he said something else that i agree with but it doesn't jump to mind.
1: Uh, up here
4: um as someone that also has grown up in ohio i know you're from there uh can you just talk about what it is growing up just in the Midwest that gave you these views? I know you said you talk about it in your book, but just things that you witnessed that
2: formed your worldview. So, so first of all, when, whenever we talk about
0: Ohio, I always have the, 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 the quote of, of, of Wilbur Wright when they said, um, when he was an old man, they said, how would you advise a young person, who wants to succeed. And he said, I would tell him to pick good parents and be raised in Ohio. So the first thing is, the first thing is to be raised in Ohio. But, but, but what did I see? So what I came from was a small town. I, I have the data in there, but it's probably less than 20% of the people have a college degree, right? But if those people aren't in the middle class, this is not America, right? Those people have to be in the middle class and I don't know what it is, 40% of them are below the poverty line. When I was growing up there, those people worked in factories. And, and the, the kid would say, my dad is the, the foreman at molded fiberglass, right? With pride, right? We're making auto parts or we're, you know, doing something with, you know, in the steel service center or, or the like. We have, we, we lost that. And, and, and we lost it because of bad policy. And, 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 and the worst part to me is that we told those people, either you are just not very good, you're stupid and don't work hard, or we blame the unions, or we said, well, your managers weren't good, right? And it's like, well, we told these people these were good, hardworking, middle-class people, not of them are in the middle, class. a few of them are in the middle class now. And why aren't they in the middle class? Why aren't their kids in the middle class? Government policy doesn't have a bloody thing to do with how hard they work. And the worst thing is that when you go a generation or two without that productive, that that self-confidence that you get from working, then it becomes harder and harder to jumpstart it, right? It gets harder and harder to have people have that. So what we focused on during that period, was what we wanted cheap Toyotas, right? We wanted, and then we don't need all those people in Asht who are making little fiberglass parts for the to send to Cleveland for putting the Ford. We don't need those people anymore. right? And, and what was our objective? Our objective was to have cheaper cars. Like what difference does it make what, what your, how much your car costs, right? within reason? And then that became television sets and textiles if you were in the northeast and it was all these things and we told all those people we said well you should either move somewhere or learn to program computers i mean you know when you take a step back and why did it happen it's a combination of this philosophy and greed on the people that were you know that were making all the money right and that's why I mean one of the things that makes me proud is to, to be a Republican and a conservative is that those are those people and the farmers are our people. Those are the ones who vote for us. They're the reason that 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 our members are in Congress. It's those people, and they just stood up and said, "This is this is crazy." You know, we're we're literally blaming the victims, and in Ashtabula, that's what happened. And and you know you could multiply it you know times. You know, a thousand places, and and what I say is that our objective should be jobs, and families staying together, and that creates communities. Right? They do Little League, they do the basketball practice, they do Boy Scouts, they get the kids together, and the combination of those communities are the reason that we're a great country. It's not, it's nothing more than that. It's it's the combination of those people living in those communities, and we lost that. And and in the process blame the victims
1: we have time for one more question uh see you back there thanks um so there's obviously a lot of libertarians in washington dc much more than the rest of the country because this is like a lot of what i couldn't libertarians hear. oh libertarians. yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is like think tank central. you probably want to know if i'm one right No, well,
3: i don't i don't think no, so I'm kidding.
1: Don't <laughs> um I think when free market uh, people that really brand themselves as free market believers and libertarians hear about industrial policy and conservatives talk in this way, they hear that um, we don't believe that market transactions communicate information, and that we don't believe that commodity trades are important and valuable. And I think that's where a lot of the dismissal of policies come from. Um, do you think that's a fair like description?
0: So so so. Uh... Obviously, you can, you can go extreme one way or the other, right? And I, I tell people, anything you know a lot about, I don't care what it is, anything is complicated. People who tell you, this is simple, you say, ah, you don't know anything about what you're talking about, right? And that's kind of, that's where it comes out. I, I got a simple solution to all of this. You say, oh, you really don't understand that, I guess. So clearly, markets are important. I start off by saying you know, we should have lower taxes on business, we should have less regulation to the extent the regulation is unnecessary. We should, our, our, our start position should be no subsidies, but then you've got to say, I live in the world, right? I live in the world and I can't, I can't not win these battles, right? I can't not win, we, we won't be America if we don't win these battles. There are other people out there who aren't following any of those rules. And, and I always sort of think if libertarian is so great, and and we, we should have open borders and free trade and all of that, why doesn't anybody else do it, right? I mean, if you kind of go down the rules, and I don't want to pick them out, there's probably some of you who are here, but I'm just saying, think about it. Open borders, free trade, No taxes, no no um, uh, uh, regulation on whether you can build a a skyscraper. Right? None of this stuff. Right? It's all bad. Yeah. Come on. Right now, their basic instinct that we have to rely on markets to the extent possible, and that markets give us that information, is I, I agree with that,
1: Ambassador. Uh, I'll take the the final question here, which is, you seem like you have a lot of fantastic ideas about what needs to be done. And, you know, Peter Navarro has written before that you should be President Trump's Secretary of Commerce if uh, he was to be reelected. Would you go back in? Would you serve if asked?
0: So, So I get that. It's going to shock you. I get that from time to time. And I always say that's what Leon bill used to call a rich man's problem right because rich men don't have problems. If that's if that comes, then we've won and and that would be a nice outcome. But yeah, but I don't know I don't know whether that, it would depend on what it would do. I wouldn't rule it out right I mean I'm you know the you know I'm I'm this sort of stuck clock. I tell people I'm the stuck clock and now it's my time, right. Now my son says, "No, no, the rest of the world is stuck. You're the clock." <laughs> so I'm, um, so and I'm, so I would be inclined to go with him on that. But but would I go back in? You know, I might. I, I would certainly be involved. You can't, you can't do this stuff for so long in the same way, and then sort of say, "Well, I'm done," and let all those people that I worry about just figure it out themselves. And I and I would say that to all of you here too. Get you know some of you are going to be sitting here in 30 or 40 years saying, oh, I remember this and I remember that. And I've been fighting this battle or similar battles or related battles. Some of you are going to be doing that, right? Some of you are going to go out and do whatever rich people do. But but some of you are going to sit there and say, "This, I'm, I'm, I did this. And you'll remember that, right? And if you're interested in that policy, you do it. Right, and that's that's kind of where I am right now. So the that's a long way of saying I don't know.
1: Well, we'll be fighting very hard to make sure Ambassador Lighthizer is in the next administration. Uh, Please, everyone, give him a round of applause. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed taping it. Thank you again to Ambassador Lighthizer for taking the time in order to do so, as well as his research assistants, who I'm not sure if I'm supposed to name or not, but they were extraordinarily helpful in helping make that episode happen. Um, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast. You can go to AmericanMoment.org join to get connected with us. You can go to AmericanMoment.org slash open positions to find out about jobs we're hiring for as well as everything else that we have cooking here at American Moment. Uh, Things are going great this summer. We are extraordinarily blessed and very glad that you guys would listen to yet another episode of this podcast, Moment of Truth. We'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.